You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Um, but once again, Exodus 32, and if you're able this morning, if you could stand with me as we honor God's Word together. Exodus 32, verse 7, Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. That's much better than the nine o'clock. You guys got your coffee in, feeling better? Good. Well, like Eric said, my name is Ty Gaston. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church, and we're going to be continuing our series throughout the, like we have been throughout the rest of the year, um, through the book of Exodus. Uh, today, we're going to be in Exodus 32, and, and we're making some long strides in text here. And, and really, if I had my way, we would just we would camp here in Exodus 32 for a couple weeks because there is a lot of text, a lot of theology, a lot, a lot here in this chapter alone. So uh, the fact that we're going to cover it all in one Sunday, uh, we're, we're going to zoom out a little bit and we're going to talk thematically in a lot of ways, uh, but we will work our way through Exodus 32. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we will get started. Would you bow your heads? Father God, would you come before us and still our hearts where we are busy in the mind, busy in the heart. We just pray that you would give us peace. You would prepare us to receive your word, prepare us uh, to be convicted by your spirit and prepare us to receive grace through your love. And so God, as we, uh, as we approach your word, may we do so with reverence uh, as we uh, Look to see what you may have us do. Would you help us to have open minds and open hearts? Guide us today. Uh, Guide our words. Guide our ears. Help us to walk out of here transformed, um, even if it's just a little bit, into more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout uh, throughout my life, I've uh, lived uh, throughout different parts of the country. and, And I've done ministry for the good part of about... Uh, 14 years at this point, and I used to always think that doing ministry in the South was significantly more different, uh, difficult than doing ministry in the North, and I used to think because of just the overt 
culture. So I thought, well, being in the South, you have a predominant Christian culture. That no, that doesn't mean everybody's Christian, but it seems like more people are Christian than they're not, or at least more people are we- willing to wear the label than not. Whereas in the North, it's kind of the opposite. More people are willing to uh, not wear the label because it doesn't necessarily gain them any kind of social clout or benefit. Instead, they're willing to say, no, nah, I don't really go to church, or no, nah, I don't believe in God. And for me, doing ministry there was much easier, uh, at least at surface, uh, at a surface level, because the conversations felt more honest. They felt like, okay, well, if you're not a believer, then now we can have an honest conversation about whether or not you are or aren't. But here in the South, it felt like, well, now I have to navigate whether or not you actually do believe, whether you don't believe. I, I don't really know. Are you like, are you a Christian because you're not an atheist? Like, what, what, how does this work here? And, and so the conversations were significantly more difficult, at least what I felt like. But uh, when I lived up north, northern, I realized that the same problem exists among us all. And that whether or not you're in the south or whether or not you're in the north, it's the same issue. And that these easy these issues are not easier or more difficult. They are just different sides of the same coin. And that the real problem that faces us all is a thread that moves throughout all of humanity. And that's idolatry. That's the thread. The thread is that we're willing to worship other things other than God. And when you look throughout the thread of it all, there remained a pervasive problem that is consistent. People think that they have broken the code and that their way of life is a better version of what God has prescribed for us. And I used to think that it was just adults too that uh, suffered from idolatry, but then I had children and those children found a game called Roblox. And now I have to have conversations every week about them wanting to spend more money on Roblox because they need it. And then you go to the store and it's, I want this toy and they get it and you get it for them. They're super happy. And then you go to the next store like, oh my gosh, I got to have this one. And it's on and on and on and on and on we go because the truth is, is that the pervasive thread that rungs, that, that rings true for everyone is that our hearts desperately want to cling to something or someone. And this is what we're seeing here at the beginning of this well-known part of Exodus. As soon as Moses has gone away, as soon as the cat's away, the mice are play, as, as the, the common phrase goes. Moses leaves, and they immediately, within a couple weeks, are distraught, and they don't know what to do here. And so they go to Aaron, and they say, Aaron, we don't know what's happened to Moses. We need you to make us something to worship, which is a, we'll get to how silly and ridiculous of a statement that is. But what Aaron doesn't do, and Aaron had one job. He had one job. As the leader, shepherd, been put in charge, he had one job, and that's to guide people back to the Lord. And so they say, Aaron, make for us a God so that we can worship. And he could have said, we have a God to worship. And he led us out of Egypt, and he brought us through the Red Sea, and he provided for us in the land of Ham. And he could have done all that and just said it and then walked away. He could have just said, no, we're not doing that, and then walked away. But instead, he did it. Instead, he not only allowed them to worship another God, he invited them and then told them how to do it better. He did the exact opposite of what he should have done. But before we make fun of Aaron and the people, we need to remember that this problem is a universal problem. It's not their problem, it's our problem. It's all of mankind's problem. 
And because of this universal issue that we all have, that it's not a North issue, it's not a South issue, not an adult issue or a child issue, it's not a race issue, it's not a political issue, it is a human issue. We are fallen people that want to worship, that were designed for worship and want to worship anything but God, anything that we can have control over. Ian Oswald Guinness says it this way, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the entire Bible. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. So idolatry is the problem. But what is idolatry? Idolatry is putting something or someone in the place of God. These end up being counterfeit gods that we worship. Anything you seek to give you what only Christ can give you, whether that's joy, security, peace, meaning, significance, identity, and salvation, any of those, it becomes an idol. And it's easy to toss aside the idea of idolatry, especially when we look at stories like this, because we are tempted to only associate idolatry with shrines and temples and carved images. And maybe you're thinking, I, well, Ty, I don't struggle with worshiping a cow. I mean... I live in Texas and I like steak, but I don't worship a cow because that would be silly, right? But the truth is, is that we have to remember that this story has less to do about a bull and then worshiping it and more about the heart. It centers on the human heart. Acts chapter 7 verses 39 through 41 says it this way. This is Stephen, the martyr Stephen. He's given his last sermon before uh, they stone him to death. And he says this, in the middle of his sermon, he says, our fathers refused to obey him, him being God, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. What a significant statement. That just like Lot's wife turned to look back at Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Egypt turned back to the place that enslaved them. Their hearts turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And like in Exodus 32, when they say that uh, this Moses that led us out of Egypt, that in and of itself is an idolatry problem. Because Moses was a figure at at the head of the movement, but God led them out of Egypt. God came to them and said, I will be their God. They will be my people. I will lead them out of slavery and into the promised land. God is the one that led them, not Moses. But they've already diverted their eyes away from God to Moses and now away from Moses to a carved image. Verse, uh, verse 41 in, in, chap, in Acts chapter 7. And they made a calf in these days and offered a sacrifice to the idol rejoicing in the works of their hands. And we have to remember that while this is obvious that the heart idolatry is there, it's everywhere and exists for all of us. You, anything can become an idol in our life. And passages like Exodus 32 exist for us as examples to learn and grow from. They serve as warnings from us, uh, for us and to us. And this is from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is a very, um, it, it, it's an amazing text because on the one hand you have the first Corinthians who Paul's about to talk to you. And on the other hand, you have the people of Israel in the book of Exodus who in a lot of ways are very similar to the Corinthian people doing wild, crazy things that they should not do. 
So it's interesting that Paul brings this up, and he's talking about uh, them worshiping the golden calf and then what happened as a result of it. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 14. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed and lest, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In other words, our hearts are going to be bent towards worshiping other things, but God's not going to allow us to just be trapped in a corner. There's always a way of escape, and because there's always a way of escape, we can flee from it. Because we have been freed from the bondage of the will. If, you're, if you are a Christian and you've called Christ Lord, he has freed you from the bondage that you have towards you doing only sinful things. If you're not a believer, there's, this is why we shouldn't be surprised when the, Lord, when the world does crazy things. Because if you're not a believer, you are, bond, you are in bondage to everything that, you, that God would call sinful. You're in bondage to it. You have no choice but to choose yourself. No choice but to choose things that are not God. Hebrews 11 says anything done apart from faith is sin. And so the, the person who's not a Christian is in bondage there. But for the believer, that bondage doesn't exist. You, because of Christ, you actually can not choose sin. You're not bound to sin in that way. So because of that, God always provides a way of escape. And we, if you're a believer, can flee from idolatry. Now, if stories like this are meant to serve as examples, then it's crucial that we understand them and why, it, why this happened to them and why it still happens to us. So I want to answer these three questions as we move about our morning. One, why do we fall to idolatry? Two, what is God's response to idolatry? And three, who pays the price for idolatry? All right. Question number one, why do we fall to idolatry? Well, generally speaking, we were created to worship, dependent upon God. We see this in the garden. They walked with God. They were dependent upon his every word, dependent upon his provision. Adam and Eve were absolutely created to worship and walk with God. Isaiah 43 says that God formed us together for the only and sole purpose of giving him praise and glory. Isaiah 43 says that is our sole purpose purpose, why we were created. So we were created to worship. However, sin has corrupted this and didn't corrupt that we were created for worship, but it corrupted the trajectory of that worship. So instead of worshiping God, like we were created for, we end up depending on other things and worshiping other things. So instead of going up to God with that worship, it goes out to other things. So when you think of God's design this way, like I said, it makes, it makes total sense why the world operates the way that it does. We should never be surprised when things go crazy because it's a perverted sense of worship. And also, when we look through our own lives through this lens, the why we do things starts to become clear. Instead of asking the question, why do I keep sinning or why did I do that? We, instead of asking that, we instead need to ask, well, what am I worshiping? Or who am I worshiping? 
because the truth is, is that if our, if our heart is bent towards attaching to other things and worshiping other things, and as the result of worshiping other things, corrupt behavior comes out, if that is how we operate and we are designed to worship, then when we sin, we should not be saying, why do I keep doing this? But instead, we should be saying, what do I keep worshiping? When did I stop worshiping God? That's the question we ought to ask. But there are more detailed reasons for not only why Israel fail, uh, fell to idolatry here, but also why we do. And I have three reasons for that. Number one, we fall to idolatry because we disobey the word of God. So in verses one through three, we see the people call for Aaron to make them gods. And the Israelites knew that this was wrong at a base level. At Exodus chapter 20, they were given the 10 commandments. And not only, it's not like that just like happened to go over the intercom and they were just doing something else and didn't actually hear it. No, they all heard it. They all heard God and saw God show up with thunder, with lightning, with power. And God speak the Ten Commandments, and they looked to Moses, and they, and they said, God, or, or they, they told Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. We can't handle it. Please, you go speak to him, and we're going to stand over here and put our heads in the sand. That was their response. They knew the Ten Commandments. They had heard them already. They knew the first commandment, which said to have no other gods. And they knew the second one, which said to not make any other images. But they disobeyed God's clear commands. And I would argue it wasn't like they, there was like a like fine print when you like sign the I agree for Apple and then you sign your life away and you don't even know it. It's not like that. These were the, like the very two emboldened, underlined uh, commandments given at the very top. The very first things that God said when everybody would have been paying attention the most, these two commandments they broke. And they still, they and we still to this day wrestle with ideas about following God and worshiping other things just like they did. They, in that moment, wrestled with what I've heard called garden thoughts. As in in the Garden of Eden, you you hear the enemy say, did God really say that you can't do that? That you really can't eat that tree? Did God really say that? You're going to die? Did, surely you won't die. That's what theologians call garden thoughts. And that's what you see here happening here. Where they're willing to worship other things because, ah, well, surely God's not mean. I mean, he's gracious. Psalm 106 says that he doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities. It's fine. It's Okay. And what God is saying is that it's not. It's actually really not okay. And these garden thoughts that come into our head are given to us not only by our sin and influenced by the world, but also influenced by an enemy that doesn't like God. And we fall to idolatry because the core of us wants to bend God's words to fit our will. We don't want to obey God's will. We want to bend his will to fit our words. And we'll chalk it up to things like translation issues or that's your interpretation. But the truth is, is that the Bible means what the Bible means and God has said what God has said. D.A. Carson said it this way, there cannot be a day where we hear, hear, don't do something and it means do it. There can't be a day where that's the case. We'll read God's word and he clearly says don't do something and we translate that through a bunch of different theological hula hoops as in like, oh yeah, it's permissible. But this is what they did and ultimately what we do. That our Bible is infinitely important and we must cling to its every word as it's been given to us. 
And by doing that, by holding to God's word, we will not fall into idolatry because we will not disobey the word of God. So number two, we fall to idolatry because we forget about the grace of God. Psalm 106 enlightens us about some of the things that they did uh, in Exodus 32. Uh, Psalm 106, 19 through through 23 says this, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. They were instructed to, by Aaron to remove the very rings that reminded them of God's grace. So why would a, a poor people walking throughout the desert have golden rings and golden earrings and golden objects? Why would they do that? Because before they left Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians and God gave it to them. God gave it to them as a sign of the covenant, as a sign of his grace, as the sign of his mercy and provision. And what did they do? Instead of giving those things back to God, they took them and made a new God. And so they forgot about the grace of God that has been given to them. They, thought, they forgot about the mercy of God that's been given to them. The, that, the gold was meant to be a picture of his grace and his faithfulness, and they minimized it. They forgot about God's rescue from slavery and provision in the desert and walking through the Red Sea. And they forgot about, forgot about it because they get in this habit of thinking about God in chapters. They think of, they go through the Red Sea and they're like, oh my gosh, God's amazing. And then they don't have any water and they're like, oh my gosh, God stinks. And then they, God provides water from a rock and then manna from heaven. Oh my gosh, this is upsetting. I wish we had some meat. Instead of saying like, oh my gosh, bread is raining from heaven. They're discontent with it. And then they get to this moment where Moses is gone for a couple weeks and they're like, well, looks like God's abandoned us. We need to make a new one. Again, silly and ridiculous statement. Any of us right now could go do some origami on paper, but I doubt anyone's worshiping it. But the fact that that was their solution shows you what kind of a ridiculous action comes out of worshiping other things. We can't be a people that look at God in chapters. We have to understand God at a meta level. We have to understand the entire narrative of who God is. God has all, when you look throughout all of the Bible, you have these texts like God is a good God. If we can get, if we know how to give good gifts to other people, how much more does God give good gifts to us? God works all things together for the good of those who love him. You see all throughout the Bible, God being a good father, and a good God. And so when things come our way that we didn't want, or we don't get the things that we do want, that doesn't mean that God's not good. It just means that God is actually protecting you from bad. Because if you want something you didn't get, or you get something that you didn't want, either one of those scenarios means that God knows what's better for you than you do. If we're operating at God being completely sovereign and completely good, whatever comes your way, whether you perceive it to be good or bad, is a gift from the Lord, even if you are unable to see it. And that doesn't mean we make like Jonah and jump ship and try to run away. It means we anchor down and we sit in and we wait for God. If we are unable to see his faithfulness, wait for God to reveal it because he always does. 
We can't think about God in chapters like they do. We need to understand God in the entirety of his story. We wouldn't do this with friends, with other relationships. My wife and I have been married for going on 12 years now. And she's incredibly nice and gracious and hospitable. But if there was a single moment where she had a moment slip and she was selfish, I would not look at her and be like, well, you're a completely selfish person and completely write her off. That would be not fair and also very unwise. The truth is, is that we can't look at God in chapters like that. We can't look at what's in front of us and then make large sweeping statements off of it. We have to look at what God has always done and then interpret the immediate by it, not interpret the eternal by the immediate. Okay. So we worship God because we forget, we we fall into idolatry because we forget about the grace of God. And then lastly, we fall into idolatry because we exchange the glory of God for something else. Rebellion against God makes us make ridiculous decisions as we see at the beginning of the chapter 32. They Instead of instead of choosing to worship the God that has provided for them and made these like grandiose miracles in front of him, instead they want to make a golden calf to worship, and they end up ascribing divine attributes to this very thing, like as if it was the thing that led them out of Egypt. Silly! It's ridiculous, and it's wild how we will do similar things. It's wild how we will ascribe divine attributes to things that fade away. It just all it does is take for you to get a new car or a new phone, and you feel you actually feel better. I know for me, like over the last couple months, there's been uh, there's been something that I've been doing. I've been tr- I was training for a triathlon, and I remember like running, swimming, biking, running, swimming, biking. I was so excited, eating all the right foods, losing weight, doing all the things that I wanted to do. And I ran the triathlon, and I f- I was happy with how I finished. And then, you know what? And then people kept asking me, "What are you going to do to celebrate? What are you going to do?" I was like, "We went to Chipotle, and I ate a burrito." like I do every week after, after church and started to plan the next one because, I, because there was a part of me, whether I realized it or not, that was not content with what I've been given. I wanted more. I wanted more because the heart is never content outside of Christ. And there's two results that happen in idol worship, not only in Exodus 32, but also in our lives. The first one is that moral corruption results from idol worship. So wrong worship leads to a corrupt life. We see this in verse number seven, the word corruptly appears. And in verse six, it says that the people, after making the, uh, after making, Aaron made the idol and they started to worship, they sat down to eat and drink and then got up to play. And a lot of people assume, a lot of theologians imply that there are a lot of sexual overtones that happened here, which brings into light what they were actually worshiping. It wasn't a calf. It was more like a bull, which is why you get that text in Psalm 106 about it being an ox that ate grass. It was more like a bull, and that means that they were worshiping the bull associated with Baal. And with Baal comes all kinds of dishonorable things that happen in the midst of worship all kinds of dishonorable things. And so this, this idea that they rose up to eat, drink, and play has a lot more overtones than, we, than it originally and at face value gives off. 
And when Joshua and Moses come back over the mountain, they said that they heard loud sounds that they thought may have been sounds of war. However, the closer that they got, the more they realized it wasn't war, but singing, chanting, and dancing. And this dancing could mean all kinds of things. And dancing itself isn't a sin, but given their worship of idols, the sounds that they heard, many theologians indicated this, this dancing was actually wild, dishonorable activity to say the least. This is why Moses had such a visceral reaction when he showed up and saw them. Because remember, it's not like it was a surprise. God already told Moses that they were worshiping an idol. He already told them. So it's not like he walked up and was surprised, but he gets there and he sees what's going on and he takes the most valuable things. These, these tablets were meant to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. These were Stone tablets that had the finger of God that had written the Ten Commandments on them. They were so incredibly valuable. And he sees what happens and viscerally responds by throwing them on the ground and shattering them. Signifying the breaking of a covenant. He was incredibly angry. And we need to remember that once the object of our worship ceases to be God, our morals are vulnerable and will be subject to corruption we will be willing to do anything to make sure that our idol stays alive. We'll make the sacrifices we need to make. We'll arrange what we need to arrange. This is why we, we will do things and at times we'll ask ourselves, what was I thinking? Why? Why did I do that? It's because you weren't thinking. What was thinking was the object of your worship for you. So first, our moral corruption gets resulted. Uh, what's the first thing? Uh, the second thing is that we become what we worship. So Israel became what they worshiped. They became lifeless spiritually in this moment. So they became lifeless just like the idol that they had created. They became um, stiff-necked is what the text also says. So they came lifeless spiritually because they abandoned God, but they also became stiff-necked in two different ways. One, it was, an, it was a gold metal idol that they worshiped, meaning it can't move its neck because it's not alive and it's stiff. But two, it's also a turn of phrase for a, an ox that had a rope around its neck and you try to guide it somewhere and it just stiff it, it plants its hooves, its hooves, stiffens its neck and it will not budge. So Israel became the very things that they worshiped. What you behold is what you will become. When work becomes your idol, you'll begin to operate like a machine and treat others as cogs in your wheel. When you worship a celebrity, you will start dressing like them and acting like them. So what should we do to avoid falling? It's simple. Direct their worship in the right direction. Worship God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as you behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, you become like Christ, transformed into one degree of honor to the next. This is how we are moved. This is how we are transformed. You will become what you behold. And if you behold Christ, you will become like him. Now, those are some of the reasons why we fall into idolatry. And so it's natural to ask, especially if we're prone to idolatry, what is God's response to it? So his initial response in the text in Exodus 32 is to destroy them. This is that conversation he had with Moses. Moses, my anger burns hot. Step aside. I'm going to destroy them. And I'll start over a new, a new line with you. 
And Moses had the opportunity to accept it, right? Because up until this moment, God had been saying, this is my people. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will lead them out of slavery. I will lead them into the promised land. This is a common language happening throughout all of Exodus. But in verse number seven, it's almost a turn of, it's almost tongue in cheek. God looks at Moses and says, uh, he says, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It's almost like a, I, I want to disown them. I don't even want them anymore. No, that's not what ends up happening because Moses steps in and intercedes and that doesn't change the mind of God, but it does, uh, it, it does carry out the plan and will of God. And so Moses has the, has the temptation to take the glory and credit, but he doesn't. Instead, he redirects the language back to God. He worships God instead of choosing to worship himself. He says, God, it's by your great power and your mighty hand that you brought them out. He's concerned about the image of neighboring nations. God, you don't want people, to neighboring nations, to look and say, like, look, he brought them out of Egypt into the desert just to kill them. You don't want that. Surely don't let your anger burn hot against them. And it said, God, relent in. And it didn't, and like I said, it didn't change God's mind, but it carried out the plan of forgiveness, which was always the plan. And that's always true for us all the time. When we pray, we don't change the mind of God, but God uses our prayers to carry out his will. It's common throughout all of scripture. It's common in our life. God uses our prayers to carry out his will. And so you see God's reaction to idolatry there. And then you see Moses' reaction by when he threw the tablets on the ground and they shattered into pieces, signifying the breaking of a covenant. And then also he does, uh, Moses does this, there's this crazy intense moment when Moses shows up to his people and he says, Whoever's for the Lord, come on this side. Whoever's not, stay over there. And it's clear by the amount of people that are in the people of Israel that most people came over to where Moses was, but there were 3,000 men that didn't. And those 3,000 men were killed by the sons of Levi. Now, I think it would be easy to think and try to try to figure out how, how do you justify this action that 3,000 men would die. And that's because we need to understand the reason behind it, namely that leaving idolaters in the land would threaten the very preservation of the people of God from that moving forward. Leaving idolaters in the land would allow for the gospel, essentially, to be stifled. And so to understand this story, namely all stories, we, we must understand the true gravity of sin The people, including Aaron, do not understand the gravity of God's holiness nor his requirement for sin when it happens. They're so concerned with following Moses that they forget that it was God that that led them out of Egypt, not Moses. Aaron is afraid of Moses' anger burning hot, not God's. There's this interaction where Moses goes to Aaron and he says, "What, what did these people make you do to create this golden calf? And Aaron says, it's ridiculous. Aaron says to them, or to Moses, don't you understand? These people, they're evil. These people are evil. And, and not just evil, but they came and brought the rings and we tossed them in the fire and out of the fire, a calf came. I don't know. It Legitimately, it's like talking to a, a child, asking them what happened to the cookies while they got chocolate on their face. And they're like, I don't know. It just, it just happened. 
It do, sin doesn't work that way, Aaron. It doesn't just happen because we know that didn't happen because earlier in the text it says that he not only asked them for the rings, but he molded it and then he also carved it. Aaron was the one carving it. It's not like he forgot about what happened. So Aaron gives this ridiculous story and it's because he thinks, for one, he's afraid of what he calls Moses's, it's, it's mirroring language because God in his conversation with Moses says, don't let your anger burn hot against the people. And when Aaron looks at Moses, who's clearly frustrated, said, Moses, don't let your anger burn hot against me. He's more concerned about Aaron's approval than he is about God's. And so Aaron thinks he can swindle his way out of his sin and he may pull the wool over Moses' eyes, but he doesn't God's. Aaron is unwilling to own the evil in his own heart instead of attributing evil to other people. Aaron wanted the people to pay for his sins instead of he, him paying for his own. And when we rebel against God, our first response is to start blaming everyone and everything around us for the things that have gone wrong. It's an, it's, it's an impulse that is insatiable and is everywhere. We see it everywhere in relationships. The reason why marriages end the way that they do at the clip that they are is because no one is willing to own their own sin. They want to blame the other. We see relationships with children, with friends, loved ones around us, church relationships end because no one is willing to own their own sin that, that you played a part in it. Listen, if we are all sinful in the room, that means that there is always a part that we play, even if it's a small part. And that small part needs to be repented of. Because here's the thing, there is no hierarchy of sin that we talk about here. All sin is sin against an infinite God, against an eternal God, which means every infraction is an eternal infraction. And if we have a part to play, we ought to lay down ourselves and repent of that part. God opposes and hates sin. And he explains just how, Jesus explains just how much he despises it in the parable of the prodigal son, when he talks about the difference between the younger son and the older son. And most of us, when we read that, the church primarily teaches about the younger son, the one that takes his his father's inheritance, goes off and squanders it, doing whatever he wants to do, living his own life, and then finally comes back and and feels like he has to earn his way back into into the father's house who just willingly accepts him. But that, that story is actually about the older brother. Story is actually about the older brother whose sin was not as obvious, but he was just as, if not more, far off. And Jesus was talking to a group of Pharisees and he wanted them to know that just because you go to church and just because you memorized your Torah and just because you do all the right things on the outside doesn't mean that you aren't sinful. In fact, sometimes that can be the, the means and the avenue by which you are in full rebellion. It's difficult to diagnose because when you do all the right things, you think you're in the right place. But we need to understand that whatever we are orienting our life around is what we are worshiping. And that is the root of sin. That is what God takes serious. What do you orient your life around? What does does your life orbit around? Does it orbit around your work schedule, your, your children's extracurricular activities, your relationships, money, You could go down and down and down the line. What does your life orient around? What does it orbit around? And if if there's any answer there that isn't 
Christ and being in the church and engaging in gospel-centered community and growing more and more like Jesus, if your answer is anything but those things, then you, friends, I'm sorry, but you are in rebellion. It's God's prescription for us that we would worship him and walk with his, walk with his community. That's God's plan A for us. And guess what? There's no plan B. Plan A is that we would walk in obedience with God. When we give ourselves over to any kind of rebellious behavior like this, we join the opposing side with the enemy of the world. Because we need to understand when it comes to sin, God doesn't look past sin. He isn't understanding of sin. He doesn't just make it go away. God is not indifferent to sin. If he was, he would not be good and he would not be just. Sin is serious and weighty and we cannot cheapen it. Just because we sit on this side of eternity does not mean that we can cheapen the weight of sin. Sin put Christ on the cross. And yes, that debt has been paid but we have to walk in obedience on the, on the other side of it. So last question, who pays the price for idolatry? Well, simply, we all pay the price and in, there are natural consequences that result from our sin and our idolatry. So the first is, who pays the price? Well, we do, you do, I do. When we worship something else other than God, something will be sacrificed. We sacrifice for what we worship. If we worship work, we will make sacrifices. We'll sacrifice our family to get there. If we worship money, we will make corrupted decisions to make sure we get more of it. If we worship our approval of other people, we will lie to make sure that people see us in a very particular way. And then what comes on the other side of that is not only do we pay the price for that spiritually, but we face the weight of shame and guilt and embarrassment just like Aaron did. So we pay the price for it. Who else pays the price? Other people around us. When Aaron led others to worship, he condemned them. When Aaron created the calf and they worshiped, not only did it lead them away to a lifeless relationship with God, but it also resulted in some of them dying. And for us, when we make work, relationships, money, fill in the blank, an idol, it begins to affect everyone around us. You see, worshiping an idol is, is like doing a cannonball in a pool. You jump in the pool with a cannonball and you think that nothing happened, but really on the outside, outside the pool, everybody got splashed. That's what idol worship looks like in our life. You think that it's only you because you're the only one that jumped in the pool, but the truth is, is that everybody got hit. So we pay the price. Others pay the price. But here's the good news, friends. Christ paid the price. Verse number 30 says this, Moses has a picture of Jesus. The next day, Moses, verse number 30, said, said to the people, you have sinned the great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And we know that this doesn't actually end up happening. Why? Because Moses cannot atone for sin. Moses is sinful just like they are. Moses is wandering at heart just like they are, prone to wander. 
He doesn't even make it into the promised land like God promised because, because of his sin. Moses is unable to do it. And so when Moses goes up there and stands in the gap, he says these incredible words to God. God, your people have sinned a great sin. Please forgive them of it. And if you can't forgive them, blot me out. And while that's a noble request, Moses is not qualified to do that. He's not qualified, which is why God doesn't honor it. But there is one who's qualified. It's Jesus. Moses may have said, perhaps I can make atonement. Jesus said, I am the atonement. Jesus said, not perhaps. He said, it's finished. It's done. I've paid the price. And not just now, but forever, past, present, future. And don't think about that in a linear timeline. It's not God went all the way in the past and forgave forgave all of their sins and all the way in the present, he's forgiven all these sins and he moves all the way to the future and forgiving sins and he's just moving back and forth on this linear line forgiving people's sins. It's not how it works. God is not in a linear timeline like we are. He is outside of that timeline and when he sees an infraction, he sees an eternal infraction, one single debt across the board that has to get paid and when, when Christ died on the cross, he stamped it, paid, done, finished. So at times we will pay the price for sin because of the consequences that follow and others will too. But when it comes to an eternal debt that sin causes, Christ paid that price for you. And in the same way that the father said to the oldest son at the end of the prodigal son, who's angry, who's bitter, who's frustrated. And you need to like almost empathize with him a little bit because the younger son had taken away his third of inheritance, walked away, came back, and the father welcomes him in and now is going to take some of his stuff because he's welcomed back into the family and do another inheritance. And he gets the, he gets the ring of the family, gets the robe of the family, gets the fattened calf, this big party. Why? Because he did things wrong. And the older brother's like, what? I don't understand. I've done everything right. I've served you. I've been a part of the community. I go to temple every Sunday. I do everything that I'm supposed to do. And he gets this? Why don't I, I don't understand why he gets it. And the father looks at him and says, son, all that is mine is yours. And what, what a powerful phrase. What a powerful statement. Because that's exactly what Christ is. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he's looking at them and saying, you don't have to earn it. All that is mine is yours. And that's what Christ says to us today. In him, all that is his is freely offered to you. It's already yours. You don't have to earn it. It's already yours. If you're a believer in the room, this is really good news. Good news that you don't have to earn the place of a father because he's already given it to you. It's good news that you can rest your head on that you may have wandered, you may have worshipped idols, you may have tried to drink from a well that has no water in it. But the good news is that God has never left you and he's present. And he's bidding you to come back to him. If you're not a Christian in the room or if you're struggling to, if you're wrestling with this idea of what it means to be one, this is also good news for you. There's nothing you have to do to accept that free gift of grace that's offered to you this morning. Christ already paid your debt. 
And if you're tired of trying to draw out of a hell, out of a well with no water, the good news is that there's a spring of ever-living water in Christ that's available to you this morning. So my questions would be to you, where have you been harboring idols in your life? Some of us have been allowing them to remain in our hearts for far too long. We have to remember, especially if you're a believer in the room, Christ has freed you. If you are free, you are free indeed. Those chains are no longer on you. Christ, unlock them. Sometimes we want to put them right back on because we think that we're not worthy. Some of us have been allowing them to reign in our hearts for too long. They have caused you to make decisions that you shouldn't have. And some of us need to go the route of Moses and tear them down and get rid of the idols that have directed our attention away from Jesus. For brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to confess those sins to someone that can walk with you through it. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father God, we come before you today and so grateful for the mercy that's offered to us. It's not earned, it's not on our merit. And so God, we're not sitting here wondering what we have to do. But God, we we just ask that you would meet us here. That where we feel like the, the path back to you or to you for the first time is too difficult to overcome, we pray that you make that path clear. You show us that it's freely offered to us. God, if there are any idols in our heart or any wayward way within us, would you please reveal it? Would you reveal it so that way we can stop trying to drink from a well that has no water in it, that we can run to you, the God who provides for us day in and day out. God, help us to see with clarity. Help us to worship in truth. And we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.